Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. I was gone last week, if you didn't notice, (laughs) at uh, my grandson's baby dedication in Colorado. That was a lot of fun. You talk to him and he smiles. What more can you ask for in life, right? Now, I was told that uh, Stuart started his lesson last week with a uh, series of rules which I have a copy of here. And I told him I was going to rebut his list, except for the fact on here he says that Kyle does not use PowerPoint, therefore I couldn't put it on a PowerPoint chart. I was trying to figure out how to do it in Excel, but I wasn't sure that this computer had Excel on it. Um, So he is right in a couple of them. I don't use PowerPoint. I don't use PowerPoint because I'm not that well prepared. Years, years ago, I asked a member of this class who was a professor of communication to critique my teaching. And one of his points was I should use more PowerPoint. So I tried it for a while. The problem is, is if you're finishing up your lesson at 10.30 on Saturday night, it's hard to then spend time putting together a PowerPoint presentation. So I'm not that well prepared. Then I started thinking of things that I could say about Stuart, you know, the fact he plays in the orchestra, therefore he toots his own horn, and I don't don't toot my own horn, things like that. He says on here that Kyle is usually right, and his rule was do not contradict Kyle. That's not actually entirely true, and if you ever get to the point where you believe everything I say, you should probably go read your Bible more, okay? I remember distinctly in here teaching one time, We were in the Old Testament. I was talking about one of Saul's descendants. And I'm going on with this really great point. I mean, it's a really good point. And then somebody raises their hand and says, but that's the wrong descendant. And I go, you're right. I was talking about the wrong guy. (laughs) You do need to know, though, that Stuart, he actually does have a master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. He knows this stuff a lot more than I know it. I remember once I was in a class, and after class somebody came up to me and asked me a question. And I gave them a reasonably good, high-level answer. And about that time, Stuart walks up, and I said, Stuart, answer this question. And he goes, okay, here's point one, here's point two, here's point three, here's a verse for that one, here's a verse for that. And I'm going, wow, how do you know that? (laughs) Oh, well, I will muddle through. (laughs) Last week, two weeks ago, we started chapter 12. In chapter 12, Jesus and the Pharisees get into an argument about the Sabbath day. You remember it started with Jesus' disciples walking through the grain field, grabbing some of the grain, rubbing it in their hands, and popping it into their mouth. They were hungry. Well, to a Pharisee, that's working on the Sabbath day. That's bad news. You don't do that. So they had a discussion about that. Then Jesus shows up and they bring him somebody who needs to be healed. And the Pharisees go, is it okay to heal somebody on the Sabbath day? Well, Jesus just heals him. And he says, it is okay to do good things on the Sabbath day. You would think that would be obvious to them. To me, the fascinating thing about that question, is it okay to heal somebody on the Sabbath, is that it's being 
told by people who have no power to heal anybody. Yet, they want to get Jesus on something that only he can do. And at the end of the discussion, Jesus says, The Son of Man, me, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Not that he's going to contradict the word of God that says we are to honor the Sabbath, but that he gets to determine what that means. He gets to interpret that scripture. And it says that the Pharisees left and tried to figure out how to destroy him. I mean, they had been on the periphery trying to figure out how to discredit him, how to get him removed, how to get the people to turn against him, and it wasn't working, so they just decided we are going to destroy him. And it's interesting, because you think, why would they do that? Why would they destroy Jesus? And the reason is, is because he was affecting their influence over the people. We contrast that with John the Baptist. Remember, John's disciples came to him and said, this guy's getting all the credit. You're losing it. And he says, so what? He must increase and I must decrease. John knew his position was to proclaim the coming of the king. The Pharisees thought their position was to keep their position of power. And they didn't like Jesus getting in the way. So we pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 12. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. What was he aware of? He was aware of the fact that they wanted to destroy him. It is interesting if you look at the life of Christ. Christ spends most of his time in the outliers, up there at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, over in the Gentile country. And he's out there in the periphery, and it's like he's not ready yet. He's not ready yet to be crucified. He knows there's work to be done. There will come a time when he will walk into the front door of Jerusalem and they're going to kill him. But that time is not yet. That time is to come. He still has work that he needs to do and so he goes away from where this controversy is taking place. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Remember, generally, as a general rule, there are exceptions to this, as a general rule, when he is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, he tells people, shh, don't tell anybody. When he's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, in the pagan territory, he tells them, go tell everybody. Remember the individual that was possessed with the demons and the demons left and fled into the pigs? Jesus told him, go tell all your family and friends. So as a general rule, depending on where he is, he tells them to tell people or he tells them to not tell people. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Remember that Matthew is talking to a Jewish audience. As such, he continually goes back to the Old Testament. He continually goes back and says, remember, this is what that prophet is talking about. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, 
and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will have hope. This is the chapter in Isaiah that talks about the coming servant Messiah. This is the chapter that confused the bejeebers out of the Jewish intellectual scholars. They had an idea of what the Messiah was going to do. The Messiah was going to be King David. What did King David do? He pulled out a sword and he killed the Philistines. He killed the bad guys. He set up a kingdom and that's what the Messiah was going to do. And you know what? There are scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah doing those things. But then there was the discussion about the Messiah being a servant. I mean, look at this passage. This doesn't sound like the warrior king. This doesn't sound like the guy who's going to come in and drive the Romans out of our land. This doesn't sound like the guy that's going to come in and make Jerusalem the capital of the world once again. There's something wrong with this picture. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Now, there are kings and there are servants and the two don't match. The two don't go together. How can the Messiah be referred to as a servant Who's he serving? Who is Jesus, the Messiah, serving? Well, he says it very clearly. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. We today talk a lot about being servants. We are to serve each other. But oftentimes it's like what uh, Foster said, we want to be servants as long as we're in control. I will help you as long as I get to determine how much I help you, how long it lasts, what I do, and I get some glory at the end of the day, right? Then I'm willing to serve you. Jesus came to serve, to do the will of the Father, and to bring us back into a right relationship with God. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and the voice from heaven came and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased? Jesus never does anything except that which brings glory and honor to the Father. He is the Son in whom Jesus is well pleased. Now, this isn't really part of the lesson, but you know, I sit there thinking of myself, thinking, you know, I do a lot of things that God wouldn't be well pleased with, right? I have certain emotions, certain actions, certain words that I just know God isn't well pleased with. I mean, Jesus may get it right, but I don't get it right. But that's the beauty of the gospel. 
We see this in the entire book of Romans. That's why it isn't today's lesson. When God gets around to looking at you as a believer, what he's looking at is the righteousness of Christ. And guess what? He's well pleased. That's an aside. I will put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the Gentiles. Now that's an interesting word, justice. How about mercy? Wouldn't that sound a lot better? He will bring mercy to the Gentiles. I mean, let's, no, let's not have a show of hands. How many of you really want justice? Now, a lot of us say we do because we're convinced God grades on a curve, okay? And I'm on the good side of this curve, And those people over there are on the bad side of the curve. In fact, as long as I can say that I'm a little bit better than a majority of the people, then I feel like I'm in. It's the old joke, you know, the two guys are walking through the woods, the bear comes up. The one guy sits down and starts tightening up his tennis shoes. And he says, you think you're going to outrun this bear? He says, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. And that's the way we feel about the justice of God. As long as I'm a little bit better than you, I'm okay. There's a problem with that. None of us are a little bit better than anybody. We're all sinners. We've all looked at God and said, no. So why is it that he says he's going to bring justice to the Gentiles? I don't want justice. I want mercy. The reality is we oftentimes think that God's mercy means that, well, I know you broke the law, but I'm going to pretend you didn't. You know, I'm just going to look the other way. I know that you were traveling faster than you should have been traveling, but I'm going to pretend you weren't. My 16-year-old daughter and I drove home on... um, Tuesday from Colorado, and I let her drive through New Mexico, you know. She has her learner's permit. Now, she did very well, but Kathy had asked the obvious question, is a Texas learner's permit any good in New Mexico? (laughs) And guess what? I chose to not pay attention to that. If we got stopped, I'd plead for mercy. We think that God's mercy means that he just doesn't look at our sin. But that's not the way it is. Justice is going to be made right. Justice is going to prevail. Well, if justice is going to be prevail, what is justice, by the way? It's getting what we deserve then how are we going to get in? Remember, Jesus died on the cross to pay the just payment for our sin. I get a speeding ticket, say. I haven't recently, but let's say I did. And I owe them a certain sum of money. Justice says that money has to be paid. Well, what if some guy walked in and said, here's the money. It's been paid. And that's what Jesus does for us on the cross. Justice is served when Jesus pays.
pays the penalty. It doesn't mean that our sin is just ignored. Sin is never ignored. The price for it is paid. But the other thing it says, justice for the Gentiles. Now this is interesting because I'm a good Pharisee. I'm a good Pharisee and I like my good Jewish people. I mean, there's Jews and then there's pagans. There's Jews and then there's Gentiles. There's Jews and then there's dogs. And Jesus says, no, God says, no, the prophet Isaiah says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about Jesus, he's going to bring justice to the Gentiles. Now, if you're a good Jew, you might be sitting here thinking, wow, he's going to go kill them all. Isn't that justice? No. The same justice and mercy that is going to be shown to the nation of Israel is going to be shown to the Gentile community. And that's what this servant, Messiah, that Isaiah has been talking about is going to accomplish. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. What does that mean? He's not going to stand and yell at you. Wait a minute. Didn't he yell at some people? Well, actually he did. He got a little ticked off at some money changers in the church, in, in the temple. He got mad at them. What's he talking about here? Well, when my children were young, <clears throat> I hate to confess this, but I did have a tendency of yelling at my children. On time, I mean, they deserved it. <laughs> and you know what? I'm not necessarily adverse to the idea of yelling at your children. I mean, when they're doing something horrible and you have to stop them quickly, a loud voice may be necessary. But what I found was yelling at them doesn't work. I mean, forget whether it's right or wrong. It doesn't work. What if Jesus came down to me, stood me up, looked at me, stuck his finger in my face, and started telling me about every wrong I'd ever done in my life? You know, he'd be right to do that. He could do that. I mean, I've done these things. He's not making up things. He could come beat me to a pulp, verbally or physically. But he doesn't do that. Who does do that? Satan? But let's talk about more immediate than that. The Pharisees. What do you mean you're healing somebody on the Sabbath day? Finger in the face. What do you mean you're not following the laws of the Pharisees? What do you... I suspect they had been doing that for years to everybody who would listen to them. You're the poor Jewish schmuck walking down the street and a Pharisee comes up and says, I'm glad I'm not a sinner like you. Now, we would never do that, would we? We would never let anyone know how bad they are and how good we are. Yes. 
What does it say? A gentle anger, uh, answer turns away wrath. Here we are, a reed. You know what a reed is? I mean, it's one of those little water plants. They are the flimsiest things in the world, right? I mean, I can go to an oak tree and I can whack it with a two-by-four until I get tired. And the oak tree won't care. I come with a thin piece of wood and whack a reed and they just start flying everywhere because they're weak. And let's say that reed is already broken a little bit to begin with. I mean, it's so easy to knock over. And Jesus says, you're that reed and I'm not going to knock you over. You know that you've sinned. You know that you're in need of a Savior. You know these things. You know that I could look you in the eye and I could destroy you with my words, but I'm not going to do it. Why? Because it doesn't work. I'm not here to tear you to shreds. I'm not here to beat you up. I am here to save you. Now, does that mean he's going to let us get away with everything that we No. Do you remember the woman caught in the act of adultery and the men drugged the woman in front of the, to Jesus and said, the law says we're supposed to stone her. You want to stone her with us? And Jesus says, sure, go ahead. But whichever one of you hasn't sinned, let that person cast the first stone. And they all wandered off. Now at that point, several things could have happened. Jesus could have turned to the woman caught in the act of adultery and said, you blank, 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 horrible sinner, get out of my sight. I saved your life. I didn't let them kill you, but you need to go talk, think about how horrible you are. Or he could have said, okay, go on, leave. But what he said was, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And he says, I don't accuse you either either. But go and sin no more. He didn't turn his back on the sin. He just acknowledged you're a weak reed and I am not going to knock you over. I am not going to be like the Pharisees that go around knocking over people who are already weak. Now, you're a good Jew. You're looking for the Messiah. You're looking for someone to drive out the Romans, and what you got is a guy who won't even kick over a reed. Think about that. We'll have more about that in the months to come, or maybe in about 20 minutes. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. You know, you take the candle, and you blow out the candle. And it kind of glows there for a moment. I mean, there is a flicker of life in it, but not much. And you know, if you're like me, you wet your fingers, and you go, Psh, and off it goes. Jesus says, you're that flickering wick. There's a little bit of life left in you. And I'm not going to kill that. This computer keeps doing this. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Guess what? That is you, and that is me. There may be some in here who are from a Jewish background. Great, wonderful. But for the vast majority of us, this is us. We are the Gentiles. Jesus, the Messiah, came to tell the Jews that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They said, not interested. And they were really not interested when they found that the Gentiles were going to be included. This is the hope that was given to us. Until he brings justice to victory, justice has to be taken care of. We just talked about this. How's that going to happen? In the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every sin that you and I have ever committed has to be paid for. It has to be paid for. There's no put on the blinders and pretend it didn't happen. But Jesus came to fulfill every requirement of justice. So God can be both just and the justifier of those of us who have sinned. And that's the promise and that's the blessing. Then a demon-possessed man was brought, who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him. That's pretty quick, right? Just So that the man spoke and saw. This man was an, unable to see. He was unable to speak. It's interesting. I mean, if you're blind, you can ask somebody to help you. If you can't speak, you can see where you can go. But if you're blind and can't speak, how are you going to get any help at all? Now, this guy was physically blind and physically unable to speak. Oftentimes, in the New Testament... Jesus uses physical ailments to talk about spiritual ailments. So at this point, we could have a long discussion about being spiritually blind and being spiritually unable to ask for help. Why would we be spiritually unable to ask for help? Because we don't want it. We don't know that we're blind and we don't know that we can't ask for the help. And all the people, verse 23 were amazed. They were in awe. And it's kind of interesting because Jesus has been healing people all over the place. You've got to kind of assume that this individual was very well known and people knew of his ailment. They knew that he had this issue. They may or may not have known that it was caused by demon possession. But whatever. And Jesus told the demon to leave. The demon left. The man could see. The man could talk. At that point, you probably couldn't get him to stop talking. Just a suggestion. And the people were in awe. Wow, that is amazing. And they said, can this be the son of David? Now, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man to emphasize his humanity. I am associating myself, I am identifying myself with you lost humanity, and he referred to himself as the son of man. 
Others refer to him as the son of David, the descendant of David who was going to restore Israel to its rightful place. Which makes an interesting discussion about what this question means. And it's fascinating if you read the commentaries. There's actually a couple of different ways you can emphasize this sentence. Is this really the son of David? He doesn't look like the kind of guy who's going to pull out the sword and go whack the Romans. Could it really be him? Or this really is the son of David because he's doing all the miraculous activities that the Messiah was supposed to do. Remember three or four weeks ago when um, John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus and said, are you the one or should we look for another one? And Jesus said, look at the checklist. And he went back to the Old Testament. The Messiah is going to heal people. Check. The Messiah is going to cause blind people to see. Check. The Messiah is going to cast out demons. Check. And that's what he told them. So the more likely answer to this is they were seeing the checklist. And they said, this guy's got to be the Messiah. This guy is the son of David. Well, you're a Pharisee sitting there. You know, you're trying to destroy Jesus or at least try to get him in a compromising position where the people will hate him. I mean, we'll see this later when they ask Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar and things like that. But all of a sudden, your plans are falling apart. You wanted to push him out of the way and the people are proclaiming him to be the son of David. You've got to do something and you've got to do something quick or you're going to lose the moment. So, when in doubt, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Wow. He's in cahoots with the devil, and the devil is letting him cast out demons to lead you astray. This is actually the second time in the book of Matthew that we've seen this. The first time he just kind of ignored them. This time he's going to address the issue. Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. That's where we get the title of the book, The Lord of the Flies. It is interesting, most people think that when he talks about Beelzebub, we're talking about Satan himself in a lot of... uh, literature, Beelzebub kind of became Satan's right-hand man. If you read Milton, Beelzebub is the number two guy. But be that as it may, he is a satanic force. And the Pharisees are saying everything he's doing, he's doing by the power that his master Beelzebub gave to him. I mean, that's a pretty strong critique right there, right? I mean, if you're doing things as a work of the devil, then, well, biblically, in the good old Old Testament, you're supposed to be taken out of the town, and they pick up big rocks, and they throw them at you until you're dead. That's what's supposed to happen to him. So, you have the people thinking he's the son of David. You have the Pharisees who are worried that he's going to lead them astray, and so they come out with their strongest weapon. Let's just blame it all on the devil. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub 
that the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons, knowing their thoughts. Now, knowing their thoughts. Well, they just said what they thought, right? They said he does it by demons. So what other thoughts does he need to know? Well, he knows their hearts. He knows what they really want. You know, if I, in my sincere heart, really believed that you were possessed of a demon, I would want to try to help you. I could have a good heart and think that someone is demon-possessed. But he knows they don't view him with a good heart. They know they're just playing this game to get rid of him. There's no good heart in this, and Jesus knows it. He knows their inmost thoughts. Now, just to scare the bejeebers out of you, you do know that God knows what you're thinking about. You know, my children are kind of worried that Santa Claus is very questionable. He sees when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. You know, that sounds kind of scary, right? Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. God knows our inmost heart. Hmm. We think, since I can do a very good job of hiding my life from you, I think I can hide it from God never going to work. Just give it up. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You know, we see this on monuments in Washington, D.C., You know where they got it from, right? The Bible. (laughs) If Satan is at war with Satan, then Satan, his kingdom, will not stand. That doesn't make sense. A house or a kingdom divided against itself is in deep trouble. What does it mean to be divided in this context. I mean, we have families, because it talks about families. We have families where, you know, they bicker and they disagree about a lot of things. But are they divided? Well, when each party has a different ultimate goal and they want to Well, let me just use the word, because the Pharisees just use the word. If they want to destroy the other side so that their side can win, that institution will not stand. Now, if I really wanted to get into trouble, at this point, we could have a nice long political discussion. And we're not going to do it. Suffice it to say... We live in a divided country. And this scripture 
right here is telling us that it cannot stand in that state. Now, we oftentimes believe that the solution for that is for one side to get a big enough club to beat the other side so the other side doesn't exist, therefore we're not divided anymore. That doesn't work in government, that doesn't work in families, that doesn't work in business, it doesn't work. And what Jesus is saying to suppose that Satan is at war with Satan is to assume that he's an idiot. Because his kingdom would not stand in that situation. Now we need to think about this for just a few seconds. He's implying that Satan does have a kingdom. Satan has been given a certain amount of dominion over this world. He is allowed to go possess unbelievers and make them blind and mute. He is allowed to do that. He is allowed to possess people such that they run around the tombs cutting themselves and scaring people. Satan has a certain amount of authority. Now in about two verses, we're going to talk about the limit of that authority. Because he's going to talk about binding the strong man. But that's in two verses. Satan has a realm that God allows him to operate in. Remember that. Sometimes we don't like that because we think that sounds really weird. That God allows Satan to operate. Why didn't he just squash him like a bug? Remember the book of Job. Satan had to come and get Jesus' permission to deal with Job. Yes? I have some difficult discussions with somebody about that who is not a Christian and is constantly going to the concept of why God, if Satan is God's adversary, why does God allow him to do this? And I try to explain to them that it's not like individual people oppose him. Right. Yes, a lot of people believe, well, if you're a good Zoroastrian, any of y'all fall into that? You do, you just don't admit it. There's God and there's Satan and they're fighting it out for all of history. Two equal powers, yin, yang, whatever you want to call it, they are duking it out. And in the end, one of them's going to win. If you read uh, blah, blah, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, fascinating book, great book, feel very sorry for the author because his son had some horrible disease and he was trying to figure out why God will allow this. To him, it's God, Satan, fighting it out, and God needs our help or he's not going to win. I hate to tell you this. Well, I actually rejoice to tell you this. God's going to win. Okay? Satan is a created being. Just like you and me. I wouldn't want to mess with him, but he is a created being just like you and me. As was just pointed out, in the providence of God, God allows Satan to have authority within the limits of God's sovereignty. Why? 
Hmm, we could have a long discussion about that, but we would never make it through our lesson. A house divided against itself will not stand. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. You, the religious authority, have followers who at least claim to cast out demons. I say that because I don't really know whether they successfully do it or not. But they claim that if you're demon-possessed, come to me and I will cast that demon out. We don't really have a lot of evidence in the Old Testament about demons being cast out of people. We do know that when Saul turned his back on God, God allowed an evil spirit in him, and they went and got David, who came and played his music, and when his music was being played, the spirit would leave for a while. But as far as good old-fashioned exorcists, we don't have a lot of evidence. But Jesus is saying, you've got followers, these his sons, this is not necessarily biological children, but people who follow your teaching, who claim to cast out demons. Now, if you're saying that I'm casting out demons because I'm in cahoots with the demons, how are your guys doing it? What this points out is our universal um, plan. When I do something, it's for good reasons, and if you do it, it's for bad reasons, whatever it is. And Jesus kind of turns it on its head and says, well, if you're accusing me, why don't you accuse yourself? Why don't you accuse your own people? Now, once again, in my mind, it's kind of like, is it okay to heal people on the Sabbath? when they knew they couldn't heal people? Is it okay to cast out demons when they couldn't cast out demons? Next reason. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I walked into this room, I told the demon to leave, and the demon left. Now, in several, in a couple of weeks, we're going to start having more discussion about the kingdom of heaven. Because we're going to start talking about the parables. And many, not all, but many of the parables begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. And we're going to start talking about aspects of the kingdom. Throughout the book of Matthew, a good Jewish writer writing to a good Jewish audience, the vast majority of times, like 33 times, he refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. A handful of times, this being one of them, he talks about the kingdom of God. Now, there are those of us who believe these terms are used interchangeably, and it's just that in deference to their belief that the word of God is sacred and should not be mentioned, most of the time he says the kingdom of heaven. But in very choice places he says the kingdom of God is at hand, this being one of them. If I have 
the authority over the demons. If I have the ability to walk into a room and I don't pull out swords, I don't fight the demon, there's no great you know, fantasy warrior fight going on, I just tell them to go and they go, then I'm telling you the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? I'm going to break into Chuck Norris's house. You've heard all the Chuck Norris jokes, right? I've told you some before. I'm not going to do very well. Okay? Because the strong man is protecting the house. There are protections that prevent me from taking anything out of that man's house. But let's say, somehow, I bind up Chuck Norris. I bind up Samson then all of a sudden the Philistines can come in and do their will. But we're not talking about Philistines. We're talking about God sending Jesus to earth to take from Satan what Satan believes is his because we have all sinned. Satan knows we belong to him because he knows we're all wretched sinners. He knows what a holy God is maybe better than us. And Jesus comes and he takes that demon and he says, get out of here. He binds the strong man so that he can bring back us. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. We sometimes think that this world, well, there are those who are with Christ, rah, rah, and there are those who are against Christ, boo, and then there's this vast majority in the middle who are just some kind of like neutral. You know, the Germans invade France in World War I, and the United States kind of sits on the side twiddling their thumbs. The Nazis invade France in World War II, and the United States kind of sits there twiddling their thumbs. We're neutral. And we had in World War I, all this, or II, had all this discussion about what we could do as a neutral power to help, but we were neutral. We, it was not our fight. And there's lots of people who think, well, there are those strong atheists who are fighting Christians, and there are those strong Christians, but most people are just good people, just trying to live their lives the best they know how. Surely you can't hold it against them. But Jesus says, no, there is no neutral ground. You are doing the will of God or you are rejecting the will of God. There is no neutral ground. Now, there's an interesting comment that we'll handle later when the disciples find somebody trying to um, cast out demons and, you know, oh, we've got to stop him. He's not one of us. 
And Jesus says, if you're not against us, then you're for us. You go, wait a minute, doesn't that kind of contradict this? It's like going the other direction. Well, let's just say that when Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against me. And when I say, (laughs) you're not for me, therefore you're against me, we have two different groups of people talking. We, as human beings, want to divide ourselves up between us, the good guys, us, the Pharisees, and those people over there. Jesus says, don't do that. I mean, as long as they're not poking you in the eye, let them go do the work of the Lord. Who knows? It's not your problem. But it's got to be my problem. It's got to be my problem that the Methodists exist. No, it's not. Pray for them. Pray that the gospel will be spread by everybody. It's not going to happen, but pray for it anyway. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. We are out of time, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you what this verse means. There's lots of discussion about the unpardonable sin. There are people who are worried they have committed the unpardonable sin. There's no hope. I cannot get in. I have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I was talking to a person this week who had a friend who had said, I cursed the Holy Spirit. There's no hope for me. I'm toast. So what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, let's look at a rather simple example. I come up to an individual and I share the gospel with that individual. I tell them about their need for Christ. I tell them about the provision that Christ has made for them. I tell them they need to respond to it. I can use the nice little picture that Stuart used last week of the chasm between God and man. I can do all of that stuff and I present the gospel to them. Now I, having read my Bible, know that I'm not going to save them. But I also know that the Holy Spirit uses my words to work in their heart, to move their spirit to accept the gospel. And if that doesn't happen, nothing's going to happen. Now, that person looks at me and with their physical mouth says, no. Now, they can do it nice. No, that just doesn't work for me. They can do it mean. Oh, that's the most stupid thing in the world. Just get out of here. They say no. And we go, they rejected me. Well, first off, they didn't reject you. Because while they were physically saying no to me, their spirits were saying no to the Holy Spirit. No. It could be nice, it could be mean, but it's no. They are rejecting the movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They are looking at the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and they're saying no! And they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. 
What is the unpardonable sin? It is the ultimate rejection of the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life. I say no to the Spirit. I say no. I say no. I say no. And ultimately he stops asking the question and I die and I have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and there is no plan B. Yes. Great. Yay. Did you hear a comment? What if they say no, 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 yes? I mean, I'm going to assume that happens with a lot of people. The unpardonable sin is the ultimate rejection, the dying without ever responding to the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you the most fabulous part of this passage. Are you ready for this? Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Your problem and my problem is not that we've committed the unpardonable sin, is we think we've committed a sin that God can't pardon. You don't understand. I hated my father. I hated my mother. I murdered a child. I did this. I did that. I did horrible things. God cannot forgive me. And God says, Jesus says, right here, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven until the day you die and you have ultimately rejected the movement of the Holy Spirit. There is no plan B. The bumper sticker on the car that I saw on the road here this morning. Many people wait till the 11th hour to be saved and they die at 10.30. (laughs) That is the rejection of the Holy Spirit. That is the unpardonable sin. You go to heaven and you say, I'm a good guy. I'm a good Pharisee. And God's going to look at you and say, God, the Holy Spirit, moved in your heart and you looked at him and said, no, there is no plan B for that option. But you show up to heaven and you have the longest list of sins and crimes and immorality and God looks at Jesus Christ and he says, in him I am well pleased. That's the only way any of us are getting in. Now, we are to confess our sins. We are to repent of our sins. But if we have accepted the work of Jesus Christ, those sins will not be held against us. Guess what the Pharisees were doing? They were rejecting all of that because they wanted to do it their way. And we're going to have a lot more discussion about Jesus and the Pharisees. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that through Jesus Christ we have salvation, that our sins are forgiven. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be like the Pharisees, but would seek mercy and peace with everyone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.